Hail the conquering heroine. Ah, yes. Let the abuse begin. Now, you must know by now, any triumph from this family is met with a healthy dose of envy, spite, good-natured teasing to keep one's feet on the ground. <laughs> Everyone's very grateful. The Prime Minister said he was going to write to you personally. Oh, better than that. He met me at the airport. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman, and on this show, we'll follow the third season of the Netflix original series, The Crown, episode by episode, taking you behind the scenes, speaking with many of the talented people involved, and diving deep into the stories. Today, we're talking about episode two, titled Margaret Ology. In 1965, Princess Margaret embarked on a tour of America with her husband, Tony. The tour gained Margaret a legion of fans, with the most dedicated calling themselves Margaretologists, hence the episode title. We'll be discussing the incredible performance of Helena Bonham Carter as Princess Margaret and events brought up in the episode. So if you haven't watched episode two yet, I suggest you do it now or very soon. Coming up later, we hear from lead director and executive producer for season three, Ben Caron. I think all film directors should go on an acting course because I think they, they should appreciate what you're asking actors to do when they're in front of a camera. And it's so easy to be judged when you're on set as actors. We'll also hear from Head of Research, Annie Salzberger, who'll give us a historical insight into the events we see in Margaretology. So he was brash and macho and so lewd that we actually felt if we used more of his real comments yeah everyone would claim that we were making stuff up no so we had to tone it down (laughs) is that a first yeah i think so (laughs) i think so but first i asked showrunner writer and creator peter morgan about his exploration of princess margaret in this episode episode two is so much about margaret yeah so much about you know, her, what's going on with her internally as well as externally. Um, and that spirit of Margaret, Helena just exudes that, I think. Yeah. Immediately. And, and yet uh, it's a tragic predicament mm. because born to go second, you know, in yeah. a sense. Um, and yet she's the more, I think everybody would agree, she's the more alpha personality and therefore probably better suited, uh, at least in her own mind, to being front of house. You really feel for her because she's, she has gone through life a second and trying to find her place, a purpose, and she finds something. She finds a purpose and she finds something that she's good at and she sees the response that that has. Goes to her sister, as she has done in the past, with a request. And I felt so let down by by her sister for the response. You really feel for Margaret and Helena's face in that scene as well, where she just sees Elizabeth and Philip walking towards her. And you can see she's hoping for that. And then you just... Mm, yes, oh. bad news again, I'm afraid. <laughs> she just seems to constantly be fed bad news. Yes, and your heart breaks for mm, her. really and, does. I mean, it would have, it, those are unrealistic expectations. By that point, she's drop down the pecking order of next in line and uh, there is a way of doing things and everyone knows what the rules are and she's been brought up knowing the rules 
So it, 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 to some degree, it's disingenuous. Uh, and also, I mean, her, her behaviour is so impossible most of the time. But when you see her as a, a sister, that is a way in to her. Margaret is such a Marmite character. And, uh, you, you know, I think for a lot of people, they're pretty intolerant of both the way she behaved and, and her imperiousness. But, you know, anyone knows that the more uppity you get, it's, it's only an indication of how non-uppity you feel, <laughs> you know. <Man>. She's quick-witted <laughs> and she's smart. Uh, doubtless the brightest member of the family. You have far too much to do, far too much pressure, far too much responsibility. And I, too little. Having no role, having nothing to do, is soul-destroying. I love the, um, the, the way that it's shot at the party that she attends in, in the States. And that's a really interesting narrative as well, was where the US and UK are as well at that time, you mm. know, in terms of not not always the best of friends as we've kind of grown up to. A, a brief look into the special relationship between... <laughs> and, and yes, there was a... You know, it was a particular low point in the special relationship at the time because Wilson had refused to send any troops to Vietnam, which might have helped the Americans uh, feel that they had an ally. It might have legitimised and, it might, you know, might have... And LBJ was struggling. So uh, uh, that felt like a betrayal. And therefore, when it came to asking for a, a you know, a, a huge bailout, I think the Americans were reluctant. Uh, I'm not sure that there won't be a few historians that might take objection to the fact that Princess Margaret turned it around with her bad behaviour in the White House. <laughs> but that's where, you know, that's where you get into, I suppose, a, 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 you know, an interesting challenge of this show, which is that you, you're looking for unexpected and surprising fresh explanations or insights as to why a historical event might or might not have happened and and I'm not a historian you know I'm not saying this is what happened folks I'm saying this might have happened and I hope you enjoy it <laughs> and uh, I thought there was an interesting thing that Princess Margaret was a slightly overlooked younger sister of the Queen who was always front of house and getting all the attention and, and the glory and so forth and and it was the same with LBJ and, and, and JFK and um, LBJ was famously um, frustrated, uh, you know, being a number two. So um, I thought that, that that gave him something in common. And I thought that if anybody was likely to charm him, it would be her. Mm. And uh, when I heard that she'd had gone to the White House for a dinner, I thought, well, why don't we make that a key event? <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Did I say something wrong? I do know these days one's not allowed to think anything other than what a great statesman Kennedy was. Say nothing, Lyndon. Of course you'll say nothing. He was his loyal deputy. But I think I can understand better than most the frustrations and resentments that can build up from a life as a number two, a supporter, even of someone you adore. You spent three years as vice president I've spent my whole life as Vice Queen. We're used to hearing about the special relationship between the UK and the United States in modern day politics. But in this episode, we get an insight into that relationship in 1965 and a look at President Lyndon B. Johnson. 
I spoke to Annie Salzberger, who heads the research department for The Crown, about the history behind the episode, as well as the extensive role that research plays in making The Crown. Annie Salzberger, welcome. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. You are head of research on The Crown. Mm -hmm. Now that, I think, really underestimates the work that you do because this relationship that you have with Peter, which has been a long-standing relationship Mm -hmm. and what is actually asked of you, can you kind of go into a little bit of detail about where that goes? Yeah, I think it's a pretty unique department. Well, at least usually there's just a single researcher for a scriptwriter and they often work kind of in their homes when needed. But to have a department, the department's now five people working with Peter from the minute he starts the series. So... Let's look at everything on a on a macro level. Let's get a timeline for the whole decade and usually spanning a prime minister's a tenure and start to figure out what these stories could be. And as, as you see in the series, you know, they tend to be the stories you never hear about mm. or are much more character telling stories rather than the big hits of history. We have 100 page protocol Bibles that the team has put together, which is just an extraordinary piece of work that allows us, um, we have actually an etiquette advisor who's on set, but we film two, we usually film two units at once. Mm -hmm. So it allows whomever doesn't have that protocol advisor to make in the moment spontaneous decisions and changes. So it really, it goes through every department. Yeah, it's wonderful. (laughs) It feels like a very warm family. It feels holistic in Mm. its its, um, outlook. It's incredible to hear about the, the kind of breadth and the depth of, of research that's done because this is the most incredible series that is dramatising these people that we think we know uh, in situations that are historical that have actually happened. But it is still a dramatised series. But knowing that you have this kind of safety net of facts and research mm-hmm. that you guys have done just must be a huge help to not just Peter, but like you say, the, the actors, but also directors, directors and, yeah. and all the other the, all the other departments, be it props, be it you know makeup, wardrobe, all those departments. Absolutely. And the hard thing about the show is we don't know what happens behind closed doors often, and so we have to be even more thorough on the information that is available out there in whatever source that might come in. It might be in a newsreel clip from 1945 of like the Queen Mother getting on the train, and for one quick glimpse, you get. You see her informally greet Elizabeth because she doesn't think she's being filmed. From that alone, I can then write up what that protocol Bible is for her. Oh, wow. Um, And so these little glimpses that you might get from a news report, from someone who's quoted in an article, kind of off the record without realizing they might be there, giving a little glimpse into, oh, no, she doesn't do that. She, you know, she drinks tea. Just these (laughs) tiny little things. And, And from that, we're able to make, I think, a little feel a bit more comfortable that there are these sort of guidelines almost and yeah. not even it's hard to explain because they're not full examples but they're little glimpses that I think ground us in making choices about the private moments So where are we uh, in the world and where is this kind of I mean it's an interesting relationship where the UK and the US are at that Absolutely. time as well. So it's 1965. Wilson's been in power now for little over a year. When he came to office, he inherited one of the largest deficits you could imagine. It was at 800 million and he has to try to figure out a way to not devalue the pound. And in order to do that, he needs to go to the United States primarily as well as the International Monetary Fund to try to get some sort of bailout. 
And he, in in Lyndon B. Johnson's version of events, harasses him uh, <laughs> to the point where LBJ starts making up excuses like, I'm sick or I'm out of town, so that Wilson doesn't show up in his front door. Wow. And LBJ had only been well, an elected president for a year now. So he took over. He was vice president under Kennedy. He took over when Kennedy was assassinated in 63. And then he was elected as the president in the following year. LBJ is a Texan Democrat who sort of portrayed himself as this cowboy, I don't know, like socially progressive guy. But he the cowboy thing, which is sort of a Reagan People associate that with Reagan. He portrayed himself in that way. He was kind of on the exact opposite end of the spectrum from Kennedy. Mm. So he was brash and macho and so lewd that we <laughs> actually felt if we used more of his real comments, yeah, everyone would claim that we were making stuff up. No. So he we was- had to tone it down. <laughs> yeah. Is that a first? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. No, screw the Brits. I don't like them. I never liked them. They're not looking down at you through their noses. They're holding their hands out like beggars. And I don't give a crap about any special relationship. Harold Wilson wants my help. He should have thought about that when he refused to support me over Vietnam. You can't screw a man in the ass and then expect him to buy you flowers. So he, I mean, he's such a great character because Johnson hated Wilson. Why? He hated him because, I think for a few reasons. One, he felt like Johnson was far more interested in domestic issues than he was in foreign issues. He didn't think the special relationship was particularly important. And Wilson didn't give him boots on the ground in Vietnam. He gave him rhetorical support for Vietnam, but he didn't give him actual tangible, you know, military Mm. support. He felt that Wilson was just this sort of civil servant type. He wasn't a national leader. He didn't inspire great things. And... It's kind of true. I mean, Wilson was a pretty state individual. I I think a lot of people would argue that actually his campaign, um, which won him the general election in 64, was incredibly fiery in some ways. But he was also like a statistician. He'd been in the in government for a very long time and or in and out of government for a very long time. And he I think one of the reasons Labour was able to win under him was because he represented progress in some way, but also kind of safe pair of hands to yeah. a certain extent. And I think to LBJ that was boring. Wilson, by the way, thought he had a fantastic relationship with LBJ. <laughs> so this One is like, yeah, he definitely did not realize he was being ghosted the entire time. You know, it's always referred to as the special relationship mm. between the UK and in the US. And it seems very different then than it is now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, it depends. It's, it's odd. It really peaks and troughs a lot depending on who's in power. So for Johnson, I think the special relationship was nothing more than a sentimental, antiquated term, Part, partly because he just didn't believe in prioritizing foreign affairs very much. Yeah. And Britain at the time was, you know, it had an artificially inflated pound. It inherited this massive deficit from the previous Tory government. It was hiding very serious financial distress. And if you knew that, then the magic was kind of gone because you, you, you thought this is this tiny island with not very much power in the world that is crumbling from the inside. I wondered, <coughs> in the past, the royal family has been extremely helpful in keeping this special relationship afloat. And given the predicament the country finds itself in economically. You'd like us to roll out the red carpet, make a bit of a fuss. Please. 
Now we'll hear from lead director and executive producer for season three, Ben Curran. Ben has worked on The Crown since the beginning and has directed episodes one, two, three and four of season three. I asked him what it was that first made him really want to be part of the show. Great writing. Mm. I mean, as a director, that's all you want is great writing, great actors and people who go, yes. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. We talk about great actors and, of course, the massive change in from that world to series three that we're, we're about to launch into is this whole change of cast bar one actually there are a couple of oh, others okay but well sort of but, sort uh, of, but yeah when they with the, with the uh they kind of going back in time type yeah 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 yeah, earlier, yeah, earlier yeah margaret yeah, and yeah. elizabeth which which wasn't actually written and then uh, we got into the cutting room and then decided oh it would be really good if we had that well this is what we i found fascinating from talking to peter was yeah. that the the edit room is an important place in terms of it can absolutely change so much. It can change the tone of an episode. It could change the, the flow or the direction of an episode. You might discover things in that edit room that you hadn't discovered whilst you were shooting. Yeah, I mean, uh, P- Peter is, he's brutal with his own work. <laughs> I mean, I suppose we all are. We're all our own worst enemies. But in particular, he is happy to cut whole speeches, scenes, moments in order to refine, refine, refine. And why use 10 words when you can use one? And it's probably the same as director, you know, why use 10 images you can sort of use one? And I think sometimes ideas that we're in love with in, in script stage and in filming will lose in the cutting room. And, and it's it's really painful because lots of people have really slaved over working on that. And not, you know, not just us, but, you know, the entire teams of set designers, costume, mm. um, beautifully written shot work that pry these prize moments that suddenly when, when they're all put together don't have a place in the story in the films and, I, and you know his instincts are always you know always right these high standards that he sort of reaches for that we all reach for kind of explains on screen but yes to go back to your question about the, the sort of reworking or sort of re-editing or reshooting is that certainly with episode two with Marketology it was a sense that we wanted to sort of look at the origins of, of Elizabeth and Margaret and so then that was what was beautiful about season one and two. We trace back to the younger Margaret, the younger Elizabeth, and the dynamic between the, the two of them, that relationship between number one and number two, and how that shadow casts its way all the way through and, you know, into where we find them in season three. And actually it's beautiful now. It sort of really bookends at the sort of meat of the show. Mm. And, and I, it's, I love going back to see those two lovely actors, Verity and Bo. I don't think I can do it. I could. I know you could. I'd love every minute to be on every coin, on every banknote, to be the most famous woman in the world. I'd be so very good at it. Wearing a big crown, giving everyone orders. Yes. I think that's what I loved about the potential for this show, that that it was going to be brave and bold enough to, to recast, you know, halfway through, that, that there would be this freshening up. Peter's always writing about the royal family and how how does it modernise itself? And I think we all, you know, almost had to look in the mirror and go, how do we modernise the crown or how do we change it or, or uh, adapt it? And I think part of that exactly was changing. The, it feels like a, a new show, but still the same show. It still has the same DNA. And it does feel like that. And, and I, you know, some of the 
these long-running series, they can get slightly sort of tired. And also, I think some of the actors, I think they want new challenges. Mm -hmm. And I think they don't come to work with that sort of get up and go. And for the actors coming in, the Olivia's and the Helena's, they um, and the Tobias's, that you know, they were sort of facing not only the ghost of the character they were playing, but also the ghost of the actor before that so it was mm-hmm. pretty I'd imagine it's pretty terrifying coming into that however Olivia and Helena are you know grand dames of sort of acting and they've got pretty broad shoulders and I think within the first few minutes they sort of stepped in and was like no this is theirs and I think you know that that baton that has been passed has been reflected but they have really made that their own and it's pretty it's just amazing to see you're underappreciating your role in this as well in terms of the fact that you're directing this episode so you're bringing together those performances and that writing to shoot that and to create that set and to capture it yeah <laughs> 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 I mean, po- yes, possibly, yeah. You know, so the, there is this relationship between those actors and your crew and, and you have to bring them all together at the same speed and pace and, and, and ambition. And so those mm. things all have to kind of work together. Peter's the showrunner, it's his vision and stuff, but it's also, you know, it's why you're you're still here in series three and on series four in terms of what you've grasped of his vision and how you reflect that in your work. So I used to work in theatre. I used to actually want to be an actor and then I realised I was terrible. <laughs> and then I used to direct theatre. And so my... Do you think that helps though? Yeah, that you massively. have that appreciation of that side of it? Massively. I think all film directors should go on an acting course because I think they, they should appreciate what you're asking actors to do when they're in front of a camera. And it's so easy to be judged when you're on set as actors because, you know, it's such an odd business. You're asking them to pretend to be truthful, to find, you know, and, and and with this writing, you know, you've got the sort of what's on the surface, but then you've got all those the caverns and depths of subtext and sort of different motivations going on underneath, like sort of what, what do you really want? Like in any situation now, what do I really want from from this podcast? I genuinely, I just want people to think I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and and I you know I want well. it to go well. I kind of want you to like me. But I'm not going to say all that, <laughs> but you are asking them to do all this on on set in front of all these people and not to be embarrassed. So trust is really important, and that that trust that you have with these actors. Um, permission to fail. What I mean by that is getting them to do stuff that they probably would go, oh god, that's going to be terrible. And and most of the time it might be terrible, but then you would never judge that. But then occasionally something happens, and you go that was really good <laughs> and they surprise themselves yeah. but you have to create that um, to, to allow that that sort of atmosphere to happen There's some wonderful scenes in Margaretology you know H- Helena playing Margaret and her relationship and place in the family is, is really kind of put into question by herself as well as the rest of the family and um, be that her relationship with Tony her relationship with their sister her relationship with her place and her role really as well and just be great to talk to you as director of that episode as to kind of how you sort of formed that and the conversations as well that you had with Helena about that character as well and with Helena, her prep work for this uh, project is amazing. You know, we, we I've been around her house umpteen times, months, months, months before we started shooting this. You know, the very first time I met her, she had just seen a, had a, a seance. Uh, well, no, not a seance. Yeah, maybe yeah, a seance. seance. Yeah, yes. around the table uh, with a spirit table, Yeah, where she asked, um, where she called for 
Princess Margaret to arrive and Shut give... Shut up. This is amazing. Yeah, no, no, seriously. That's, Did you not know this? This is brilliant. So the first time the psychic turned up, Princess Margaret wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Didn't turn up. So um, so she, she were left and then she came back again second time she did turn up and Helena asked her permission so could she play her which she gave apparently I love <laughs> I know you're gonna have to ask her this story about uh, this well. because I'm paraphrasing it but apparently um Princess Margaret told her that she needed to tidy herself up a bit that she was a bit scruffy and she'd smut herself up but that uh, she thought she would be perfect for playing the role but um, I'm sure she could tell you in more depth about how that conversation went so that was my first meeting with HBC which which I you know I loved it because yeah. everyone every actor has different approaches to how they come to this role and I think she had met Princess Margaret in alive Princess Margaret in the past and now dead Princess Margaret quite strange that uh, and I think uh, her, you know, the Bonham Carters are quite famous. I think actually the Bonham Carters were in uh, season two at a wedding once. But um, so she had met Princess Margaret a couple of times and knew that world slightly. And I think she just, I don't know, wanted to feel that this was something that she could do, that she could mm. go in and get permission to do. And then it was just a process for her of meeting as many people that knew her, reading, talking about it, and then just gorging on all of that information until the day. And then hopefully that then just sort of just comes out in, in various different ways that we're, we're playing it. That performance from Helena is quite extraordinary because, you know, when she's shining, when she goes to Washington and when, you know, there's amazing sequences um, with Lyndon Johnson where they're sort of dancing and they're doing the... Um, she's holding uh, court. The limerick. Yeah, she is holding court. And you do, you know, and you do for a moment go, wow. Any more? Princess Margaret won the evening with this one. There was a young lady from Dallas who used a dynamite stick as a phallus. <laughs> they found her. You've made it this far. They found her vagina in North Carolina. And her arsehole in Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Bravo. The Queen, or Harold Wilson, couldn't get Lyndon Johnson to offer a bailout. So Margaret has gone over there and she has won them over. And, you know, Peter's clever writing is, in many ways, Lyndon Johnson is quite similar in terms of Margaret. He was a number, you know, or was a number two mm-hmm. under JFK for a, for a while. So there was a sort of kindred spirit there between the two of them. And, and, and I think that, you know, and that's where Peter's writing is brilliant. You can sort of see the parallels between that. But then she comes home and then Elizabeth says to her, you know, you weren't, it was just a dinner, you know, and that your heart sort Mm. of crushes in that one moment. But, you know, it's sort of left with that tiny little bit of hope and then, which then Philip sort of squashes pretty soon. Yeah, I think he does. But, you know, he talks about... um, the dull, the dazzling, the duty, the dangerous, the sort of two personalities, the number one and number two. And and then, of course, and in that, and, and you go all the way back to season one and you, and you think about the Duke of Windsor and you think about the dazzling and how dangerous that was. And then, so all of these amazing kind of origin sort of through lines make, oh, I certainly felt in that moment there, actually, it would be dangerous to have Margaret, even though brilliant though she is, it is dangerous, and we could be we could be in situations where they overstep the mark. And these dynamics, these political dynamics, are um, you know they're delicate, aren't they? And mm. I think you sort of say, okay, no, she she needs to find her own path in life, and 
being the queen, sadly, somebody, somebody's already got that job. That's that shot when she's in the garden waiting for Elizabeth and Philip to come out, and she's got this yeah. kind of look of just hope, and yeah, and then oh, and, yeah. and just in the look, the, the facial expression that yeah. HBCs and yeah. is just <laughs> it is it just breaks yeah. your heart. Well, I think that that's what I love about the Crown is that um, you know you've got Peter's beautiful writing, and then within the spaces you've got the silences, which again tell you more than any words could and you just see in that moment there where two sisters meet eye to eye and she knows immediately that she's not going to get what she's asked for again it's heartbreaking there have always been the, the dazzling Windsors and the dull ones your father a saint but dull sorry your grandfather too George V deadly dull at the, at the height of the Great War, when the, the Tsar and the Kaiser and the, the Emperor of Austria were dazzling the world, where was he? He was sticking stamps in his album. His wife... Queen Mary, wonderful. Ditchwater. You know, and so it goes, through George V to Queen Victoria and back, an uninterrupted line of stolid, turgid dreariness. Culminating in me. Yes, but... Alongside that dull, dutiful, reliable, heroic strain runs another. The dazzling, the brilliant, the individualistic, and the dangerous. And so, for every Victoria, you get an Edward VII. For every George V, you get a Prince Eddie. For every George VI, you get an Edward VIII. For every Lilibet, you get a Margaret. And she may have had a success in Washington, but let's not delude ourselves that serious diplomacy can be achieved through drinking and dancing. Let Margaret have the glory. But let's not rewrite the constitutional rule book because she got lucky once. And where does that leave my relationship with her? Unchanged. You're the queen. And she is your dangerous baby sister. She's outside. She knows we're talking about her. Then let's join her. That feverish mind of hers needs no encouragement. I'm Edith Bowman and my special thanks to our guests on this episode, Peter Morgan, Annie Salzberger and Ben Caron. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and something else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us next time when we go behind the scenes of episode three, which depicts the devastating tragedy that befell the Welsh mining village of Aberfan on the 21st of October, 1966. Sorry to interrupt, Your Majesty. Michael, uh, I'm afraid there's been an incident in a mining village in South Wales. A coal waste tip collapsed and slid into a junior school. It's okay, there's been significant loss of life. I would suggest an immediate response. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.